The eye of a hurricane can be quite a nice place. The weather is calm and quiet, and the sun beams down through a cloudless sky. And while nature rages in every direction, those that find themselves in the heart of the storm experience a moment of peace. But of course, whoever finds themselves in the eye of a hurricane is the most unfortunate of all. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 5, The Winds of Empire. It's well known that the destruction wrought at the eye of the storm is often exacerbated by the ignorance of its victims. Thinking the worst is past, those who have never seen such a phenomenon lower their guard, leave their shelter, and just as they're beginning to open up their homes again, find that all of a sudden the storm is crashing down upon them with merciless fury, ripping apart the world around them. It's an apt metaphor for the history of South Florida during the period spanning from the late 16th to the late 17th centuries. The inroads that Pedro Menendez de Aviles had made in the area in the 1560s were the most substantial yet. And though they had come at a great cost, they had yielded practically nothing of value. But Menendez had achieved Spain's primary goal for Florida by establishing St. Augustine, and with the treasure coast thus secure, the Spanish turned their energies resolutely away from the rest of the stubborn and impenetrable peninsula for more than a hundred years. The Calusa and Tequesta Having weathered the onslaught of Spain's first arrival, the apocalyptic wave of disease, the attempts to conquer, enslave, or convert them, thus found life returning to relative peace, and perhaps some semblance of normalcy. They were, for the most part, left alone by the Spanish throughout the 1600s. And to be sure, things would never be like they were before, in the time of their great-grandparents, the Spanish remained a presence all around them. They traded with one another, and in fact their interactions were sometimes quite friendly. The Tequesta could be counted on to come to the aid of shipwrecked Spanish sailors, and the caciques, or chiefs, of the Florida tribes were often invited to celebratory feasts in St. Augustine. And what exactly was going on on the banks of Biscayne Bay during these 130-odd years is not well documented. The Tequesta and Calusa did not leave us much in the way of records or artifacts. But several generations lived their entire lives there during this period. And not just for the Tequesta and Calusa, but for all the people of the Florida Peninsula. The Miami, the Jaega, the Ice, the Tocogaba, and several others. The tribes went to war, fought for territory, traded... They carried out their religious ceremonies. Caciques died and new leaders rose. Children played on the banks of the Miami River, grew to adolescents who learned the ways of survival within the hammocks, the lessons of life around the fire, and the meaning of love along the shores of a moonlit Biscayne Bay. They became adults 
and watched their own children grow up to have children of their own, before finally taking their last breath in the place their people had called home for thousands of years. But none of this is recorded. The only history that we have today is what's been passed down from the European colonizers, and they were far too preoccupied practically everywhere but Florida. In North America, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean, the winds of empire swirled in every direction. What in fact was taking place was the first moves in a game of territories that would play out between the European powers for the next 500 years. The age of European colonialism had begun, and the whole world was up for grabs. For a century after Columbus's voyage, Spain and Portugal had been the only real players on the map of the New World, with the other seafaring nations of Europe making only meager attempts to establish settlements. By the end of the 1500s, the Spanish Empire had conquered the Caribbean, Mexico, and Central America. They had established a firm foothold in what would later become Peru, Argentina, Colombia, and Venezuela, and had penetrated as far as modern-day Paraguay, Bolivia, and California. Spanish America was no longer just the mysterious frontier of Ponce de Leon's time. No, now a powerful administrative apparatus projected the will of the Spanish crown onto their American holdings. And this thing was a Byzantine bureaucracy with one goal, extracting resources. A mind-blowing amount of wealth was being pulled out of the Americas by Spain. They invested enormously in building up the infrastructure to collect it. They constructed cities and roadways and worked in the mines and the fields, and this gargantuan undertaking required gargantuan manpower. And so they turned to the age-old practice of slavery. Spain had initially relied on enslaving the indigenous peoples they encountered in the Americas. But in a cold calculus, they found that enslaved Africans were more resilient to European diseases than the natives. They were also cut off from their homes in Africa and torn apart from their communities and families, leaving them fewer resources and less capacity to organize, so they were easier to control. We see the African slave trade to the Americas getting well underway during the 1600s. And on the backs of enslaved Africans and natives, Spain extracted enormous mineral wealth, with the value of all the gold and silver mined in just Mexico in just the 1600s estimated to be in the trillions of U.S. dollars today. But Spain wouldn't be the only game in town for long. Though they were late to the party, the other European powers finally started to get in on the action by the 1600s. The Dutch, the French, and the British were all scooping up chunks of North America. And like a giant board game, the Europeans had begun dividing up the map jostling for strategic advantages against one another. England in particular made swift inroads with the rapid succession of colonies that sprang up on North America's east coast. The first permanent British settlement was Jamestown, Virginia, established in 1607. Within 27 years, 
the colonies of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maryland were settled. And in 1663, the British acquired New Netherlands from the Dutch, renaming it New York. They then started expanding south, where there was plenty of fertile soil for growing crops. They established the Carolinas in the same year as New York, and by 1670, the British began moving in on the land that would become the last of the original 13 colonies, Georgia. The French similarly expanded quickly during this period. They took a slightly different route than the British, focusing initially on finding a northwest passage that would offer a northern sea route to China. Well, since there is no northern sea route to China, they settled on the banks of Hudson Bay in what is today French Canada, establishing Quebec and Montreal, and becoming the first Europeans to explore the Great Lakes. They claimed vast swaths of territory west of the Appalachian Mountains, expanding into modern-day Ohio and Minnesota, and exploring the headwaters of the mighty Mississippi River. And they followed the Mississippi deep into the North American interior, consolidating all of their land claims into the enormous Louisiana Territory. And so both the British and French crept steadily closer to Florida, throwing the lives of the native peoples of North America into chaos. With each acquisition southward, the British came nearer and nearer to Spanish territory until they were right at its doorstep. And in 1683, the French explorer La Salle reached the mouth of the Mississippi on the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, just a few hundred miles west of Spanish Florida. Unbeknownst to the native people of the peninsula, the storm was closing in around them. But there's one area we haven't yet covered, and indeed, it's right next door to Miami. If you recall, just off the east coast of Florida is that splattered archipelago where Spain first made contact with the New World. Well, by this point in history, the Bahamas was a very interesting place. See, because this was the golden age of piracy in the Caribbean. Now, piracy had been around in the Caribbean as far back as the 1550s when French Huguenots sacked Havana, forcing our friend Menendez to establish the Spanish treasure fleets. But the swashbuckling buccaneers of legend did not reach their height until the late 1600s. Now, although the Spanish dominated the Caribbean, by the 1650s, the French and British had also made some major plays. Haiti had been under French control since 1625, and England could count St. Kitts and Nevis, Jamaica, and the Bahamas to their name. But despite the presence of several major powers in the West Indies, the storms of war far away in Europe conspired to allow a flourishing criminal network to thrive in the waters around Florida. The Thirty Years' War began in 1618. It was one more in a series of religious conflicts that had rattled Europe since the Protestant Reformation, as the Catholic Church struggled to preserve its ancient supremacy. But this time, the conflict quickly grew to engulf all of the major European nations and would go on to become one of the deadliest and most destructive conflicts in human history, a no-holds-barred slugfest that killed millions upon millions of people in Europe 
and strained the military resources of the combatants to a breaking point. With their navies weakened by the relentless fighting back home, the European powers were unable to police the waters of the Caribbean. It was a recipe for disaster, as more and more valuable shipments were moving through the area than ever before. And so strongholds of lawlessness began to take root, places such as Port Royal in Jamaica and Tortuga in Haiti, where bands of outlaw sailors could launch raids on the unprotected shipping channels. But the biggest stronghold of piracy was just a stone's throw from Miami's shores. In the scattered islands of the Bahamas, the infamous pirate town of Nassau rose to be the central hub for the pirates of the Caribbean, a place where deals could be made and equipment could be purchased, where men could be recruited or find a place to hide from the authorities, and where boatloads of pirate booty could be unloaded without reproach. The countless small islands of the Bahamas were relatively far from the major colonial strongholds, and made it easy for a nimble ship to disappear after a daring robbery on the high seas. And of course, it was a great position from which to stake out all of the fat, juicy ships headed up the Gulf Stream on their way to Europe. Charles Vane, Thomas Barrow, Calico Jack Rackham, Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, and of course, the granddaddy of them all, Blackbeard himself, were all based out of Nassau at one time or another. The golden age of piracy lasted from the last half of the 1600s into the early 1700s. In 1718, the English, having rebuilt their fleets in the decades since the Thirty Years' War, decided to clean up their act and made the Bahamas a crown colony, stamping out the grand pirate paradise. And the other major powers in the West Indies followed suit, and together they collaborated to return law and order to the waters of the Caribbean. But the pirates of the Caribbean had created a lasting legacy, an indelible mark that would continue to play a major role in shaping the history of the region, and even of South Florida itself. So by the end of the 17th century, Florida is completely surrounded by European powers. It's controlled by Spain, which has a vast empire to the south and west across the water, and it's got the British and French bumping up against its northern border. For the time being, South Florida and its people were still enjoying the relative peace of the eye of this ever-intensifying storm. But these various winds of empire were all at odds with one another, and each vying for wealth and power and territory with some gaining strength at the expense of others' weakness. Spain, in particular, extracted massive amounts of wealth from the Americas, but a combination of harmful economic and trade policies and the effects of pouring massive amounts of resources into fighting the Thirty Years' War with very little to show for it would leave it stumbling into the 1700s having already passed its prime. And so as the eyewall of this hurricane closed in around Florida, Spain would be woefully unprepared to contend with the forces it would unleash. And the native people of South Florida would be left to weather the surge and bear the tragic brunt of this foreign tempest 
all on their own. 